The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. My name is Darcy and I work on the editorial team here at the II. And I'm Ricky, production lead here at the II. And today we've got The Happiness Delusion, featuring co-founder of Navara Media, Aaron Bastani, behavioural scientist Paul Dolan, and multi-award winning writer Joanna Cavena. And this took place at London How the Light Gets In Festival 2022, the philosophy festival produced here by the team at the II. So, Ricky, tell us a bit more about the debate. Well, yes, the happiness delusion. Obviously, all of us want to be happy. I think that almost goes without saying. But so many of us struggle to become happy. And this debate questions why that is. Why are so many people unhappy when we have this kind of clear goal in our lives? Is life maybe just not about happiness? Mm. Should happiness be a byproduct of pursuing other projects? Mm. Interesting. I'm reminded of the great quote from Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, which goes, life, although it may be an accumulation of anguish, is dear to me and I will defend it. So maybe it's not all about being happy. Maybe it's about, you know, accumulating struggle. <laughs> and remember, if you enjoyed today's debate, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iii.tv for hundreds more podcast videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Now let's hand over to our host, Rana Mitter. Hello, and a huge pleasure to see so many of you here today at How the Light Gets In. Oh, happiness, our being's end and aim. Well, that was the claim of Alexander Pope. And now, a few centuries later, it's not just all about smiling faces on billboards. Some governments have made happiness measures a central goal of policy. 89% of young people in their 20s think that life has no purpose other than happiness. But might this be a fundamental error? Income in the West has gone up threefold since the 1950s, but those who say they're unhappy has not fallen. Instead, it's up by 50%. Countries like New Zealand that target a happiness index have some of the highest rates of depression and suicide. Is our focus on happiness making us unhappy? Should we see happiness not as the goal, but as the outcome of other actions and focus instead on purpose and achievement, individual and collective? Or is the notion of an end or purpose to life happiness or anything else, the fundamental mistake. Well, we've got three fantastic speakers who are going to be exploring exactly that question. Erin Bastani is co-founder of Navara Media, an independent and radical left-wing alternative media organization. He's also the author of the book, Fully Automated Luxury Communism. 
Paul Dolan is a behavioral scientist at the London School of Economics. He's author of the best-selling book, Happiness by Design, Finding Pleasure and Purpose in Everyday Life. And Joanna Cavenna is a multi-award winning writer. She was named as one of Granta's best young British novelists for her groundbreaking novels, and they include A Field Guide to Reality and Zed. And we're going to start here in true How the Light Gets In style by asking each of the speakers to give us a quick pitch of no more than three minutes on that core question for our debate today. Is our focus on unhappiness, sorry, is our focus on happiness, <laughs> or even on being able to read, <laughs> is our focus on happiness making us unhappy? Erin, would you start us off? Hmm, yeah. My worry with this panel is we might agree on too much. Uh, so m maybe I'll try and create some dissensus. For me, the issue isn't that we are pursuing happiness, but rather that we constantly seek to evade unhappiness. Um, I think there is basically a sort of pyramid upon which you would want to build happiness, contentment. The first is meeting one's personal needs, shelter, food, um, access to healthcare. On top of that, you would want to uh, see uh, certain projects in your life being fulfilled, self-actualization and whatnot. And furthermore, on top of that, you'd want a sense of obligation and service to other people. Now, I think unhappiness comes in when any of those three things are missing. So this idea, and it can be quite a reactionary one, I think, of, well, we just need a little bit more pain and misery in life, and actually that will do us all the world of good. I think that's mistaken. Whereas my mother's generation used to say, as I was growing up in the 1990s, what we need is a good war. Uh, very reactionary sort of Thatcherite statement you'd hear a lot then, less so now, thankfully. I don't think that would make anybody more happy. Where I do think we're failing, though, as, as I said is at the beginning, is that we have a society now which constantly seeks to evade unhappiness. There's a wonderful stoical aphorism which essentially states that the more voluntary unhappiness and pain you embrace, the less the involuntary stuff hurts. So the next time you have to get up at 5am in the morning to take your kids to football or you have to do something at work which you really don't want to, uh, just remember it's probably in the long term going to make you happy. Finally, <laughs> that's true, as long as you want to do it, that's the key thing. Uh, finally, I would say we have a, uh, a pandemic, an epidemic in this, in this country, in our, in our societies of, of loneliness and solitude. And for me, what is the opposite of, of happiness? And I think that's a good way of understanding what real happiness is. I'd say two words, boredom and being alone. And when I say boredom, people say, oh, God, look, sometimes boredom is good. It's, you don't have to be on your phone and distract all the time. I don't mean that. I mean, bored, being bored in one's life, I think, is deeply detrimental to happiness. And I think that sense of not really having social obligations and being in touch with others again is a real, real problem. And sadly, we have a society which is built precisely on these two things, um, liberal capitalism does lots of good things. It helps us meet some of those essential needs. We've haven't, never had such extraordinary social abundance. But at the same time, uh, we're missing out on some of the, the sort of connective social tissue that actually has been the mainstay of our civilization, our societies, not just for the last 12,000 years with agriculture, for the last 200,000 years since the birth of our species. And it's only really in the last sort of 50 to 100 years that those are beginning to erode. And so that sense that actually we're more and more unhappy, uh, I don't think is inaccurate. But I don't think the problem is the pursuit of happiness. I think it's the constant evasion of unhappiness. Sometimes, if you choose to be unhappy, even briefly, it can be good for you. So there is a bold statement. Choose unhappiness, at least in some circumstances. Thank you, Aaron, for that starting point. Paul, could I turn to you for your three-minute pitch? 
Yeah, most of what he just said. <laughs> oh, right, well, the next one, I guess. Most of what he just said, not all of what he said. So um, I distinguish between being alone and feeling lonely. Um, I think that's important. We've had an epidemic of loneliness, not necessarily being alone, right? And we, we, we see loneliness rates, um, reported loneliness rates, highest amongst younger people. Often people think about loneliness as being older because they are alone. Actually, young people connected on social media often feel lonely. Um, so completely agree uh, that it's a fundamental determinant of people's happiness. Um, people make all sorts of mistakes about what's going to make them feel good. Keeps me in a job, really. Um, sort of mocking people for their stupidity. Um, but none of us really, unless we're masochistic, well, let's leave that category to one side, actively search out things that we know for sure would make us feel worse. As I say, we make all sorts of mistakes. We get it wrong all of the time. And the reason I say that is because I have a very inclusive definition of happiness. A lot of obviously will turn on what we mean by happiness. And it was set up at the beginning as almost like a choice between happiness and purpose. The subtitle of my book, which you thankfully read out, is Finding Pleasure and Purpose in Everyday Life. Happiness, for me, includes the eudaimonic as well as the hedonic. It is a sense of feeling like what you do has a point, is meaningful, isn't boring. I think that's abs it's absolutely right. Boredom, boredom is awful. And without the risk of boring you by talking for too much longer, of course, a fundamental part of the human condition is survival. But it ain't survival just to any end. We're motivated to survive. We have incentives to survive if we're motivated to feel good in doing so. Um, and as I say, leaving masochism to one side, um, then we are a species that has sought to, with all sorts of mistakes and all sorts of errors, maximise happiness in one form or another. Thanks very much indeed, Paul. Succinctly put and giving us plenty to think about. And that term purpose is something we'll come back to later in the discussion, but not immediately, because I want to make sure that we have this uh, first take in terms of what we're actually talking about. Joanna Cavenna is going to lead us on on that. Thank you, Rana. Um, so I agree, yeah, dangerously quite a lot with both of my fellow. This is discussants. making me very unhappy. All this agreement. Yes, but go sorry, on. but I mean, I, it's such an interesting word, happiness, because we all kind of agree that it's a good thing. Well, apart from Aaron's arguing that it may not be in some settings. And if I wish you all a happy weekend, that's meant to be a sort of nice thing. But as Paul was saying, there's all these different meanings of course in intrinsic to that are you a hedonist or a eudaimonist or and if i mean it's nice the idea that you combine them because i always think otherwise you know if you said a happy weekend and then you put them to the two groups together you know the eudaimonist will all want to be sort of virtuous and the hedonist want to go and get smashed and actually they're both having a really difficult time at that point so it's good to find a way i think to combine and i was thinking about this in terms of uh, uh there's a good title to a uh, collection of short stories by David Foster Wallace, which is a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. And I quite like that idea. How many supposedly fun things have we done? And maybe in a sense, as we gain knowledge in life, part of that is gaining a sense of what these supposedly fun things are for each one of us and kind of knocking them off the list and, and learning the things that we actually enjoy. And the other thing is, as Erin was saying, I mean, this quote you mentioned, Rana, about Alexander Pope on Oh Happiness, Our Beings, End and Aim. That's, uh, that's a kind of piece of sort of optimism philosophy from the 18th century. And Pope says, don't worry, everyone. Be happy because God has got this. And whatever is, is right. And just kind of chill. And even within the 18th century, in a very religious time, 
there's a huge amount of kickback to that. I mean, Voltaire says, what on earth are you talking about? You know, there's just been a terrible earthquake in Lisbon. You know, nearly 50,000 people have died and you're talking about general happiness. And he says, you're making kind of general happiness, you know, this sort of ultimate goal of all this dire unhappiness. I mean, how dare you? So there's a kind of debate there about how can, how can Alexander Pope be so relaxed in the face of a sort of general suffering as well. So I think I, I'm going to agree, really, that, that reality is very complex. Our lives are very <coughs> mysterious. And I think single definition terms may not define them entirely. And um, the philosopher William James talks about this. He actually says, if you try to measure the, disc the kind of amazing continuity of experience with a single discontinuous word, then it's a bit like if you try to fish up water with a net, you're going to kind of lose all the interest and everything that's good about life. So I guess William James would say happiness is a net and our lives are water. And so this kind of sort of single idea will never fully encompass them. Thank you, Joe. And I love that line that happiness is a net. And if there's anyone called a net here in the audience today, <laughs> yes, in the you're very a, happy. please yes. do uh, put your hand forward and we'll find out whether that really is true or not. Now, Paul brought up a little earlier, and it is indeed, as he mentioned in the title of his book, The Question of Purpose. And I'm going to do something which is to put purpose aside for just a few minutes, because I want us to have a little bit more of a, not an abstract discussion, but one that looks in a slightly wider focus, about the question of what it means to be happy. And we've had some takes from our three speakers here, but I want to try and push a couple of points first. And Aaron, I'm going to come straight back to you. Uh, Again, you are the author of a book, Fully Automated Luxury Communism, again, probably available on a capitalist basis in the uh, tent uh, uh, immediately afterwards. For profit. But for profit, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, well, I'm sure it's all going to a collective uh, um, uh, somewhere. I want, to t I want to focus in, though, on a term in that title, which is communism. Because one of the things that, of course, a communist viewpoint puts forward is the idea that collective action, collective endeavor, and collective product is an essential part of the best way in which the society might operate. So the question I would put to you at this point is, is it possible to be genuinely happy in a liberal society? And by liberal, I mean one in which the individuated self is at the center of what makes one happy or not. What a wonderful question. I'm glad you got that. You're next, Dolan. I'm not answering it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say what he said. <laughs> what a wonderful question. Um, I, I would actually say that liberals get half of the answer right, which is that the individual is uniquely placed to determine their own lives, their own happiness. Nobody else is, right? What they don't understand is that for, to be for that to be possible, you need socialist means. So for liberal ends, you need socialist means. What does that mean? It means you can't have the autonomy to alter your own life if you don't have access to housing, healthcare, food, childcare. It's all wonderful to say, oh, go and read the collective works of Goethe, Go and watch, you know, Moliere at the Royal Opera House or whatever. But if you're going to your, you're going to the ATM and it's saying you're 200 pounds overdrawn, it's it's irrelevant. That idea of self-actualization and becoming the person you want to be, in the absence of access to the fundamental needs in life, is actually where I think that was where the liberal account falls very, very short. And if you are serious about liberal ends, individual individuals actualizing themselves, determining how they want to be happy, then absolutely you need an economy which looks very, very different to the one we have and looks very, very different from sort of the orthodoxy of, 
of liberal economics, which says the market can do everything, the state should be nowhere. Well, if you want that, then it means many, many people, in fact, the vast majority of society, can't determine their happiness. But so it's a limit. Liberal economics are a limit on the liberal understanding of individuals achieving their own ends. So that's liberal economics. But just to follow on that point a moment before I bring the, the, others, the others in, is it possible to say that the achievement of happiness is in the end a liberal goal on the grounds that, as you were suggesting at the beginning, it has to come from inside? So that's more about the idea of the liberal self. I think you're doing liberals too much of a... I think you're crediting them with too much uh, sort of intellectual innovation. I mean, societies have talked about happiness and its pursuit a long time before Jevons and Malthus and Bentham and J.S. Mell. Um, so I, I don't think that's entirely true. I think where liberals fall short again is the idea of happiness, going back to Bentham, of seeking to avoid all pain. I think, I think that's the liberal contribution. I don't think the pursuit of pleasure and happiness, we can go back to, the, we can go back to Greek antiquity if we want to discuss that. There's probably, you could, if, if, we had the, if we had access to it, I'm sure there are tablets from Arcadia and Mesopotamia and Sumer saying all of that. I think the contribution of liberal modernity is the evasion of unhappiness, which, as I've said, is, I think, quite dangerous. Joanna, do you want to stand up for liberals and their idea of happiness? Don't ask me that. I mean, why don't you think? He's the, he's the one who... Yeah, that's his thing. No, it, um, well, I was thinking, I was interested in what he was talking about, about the evasion of unhappiness. Sorry, what Aaron was talking about. He. Um, and this idea, I think, in fiction, which is kind of the field that I can vaguely represent, that there's a lot of concern about that, this kind of notion that you have these slightly creepy utopias where everybody is happy whether they like it or not, and there's a particular sort of happiness that is then defined as the only sort of happiness. And you could think of the Soma Eaters in Brave New World, or the kind of, again, as Erin was saying, the sort of banishment of pain and disaster in something like the Huyanims in Gulliver's Travels. They just live in this really calm, emotionless way. So that kind of idea, I think, we get into, that's why Orwell says you can either have freedom or happiness, because he's saying, there are so many societies which they sort of sell you this idea of happiness. If you do what we say, you're all going to be happy. And then, of course, that's a, quite a crushing blow to any sort of freedom, potentially, because you can use that as a form of social control. So I think that's probably a possible answer using fiction, I think, maybe. Well, is the challenge that Aaron put to us actually one that, in a sense, is at the heart of what makes things easier or difficult for a novelist? Because trying to evade unhappiness is presumably a worthwhile thing to do in one's real life, but very, very boring or dull if you're creating a character. The unhappy, I mean, again, I don't want to quote Tolstoy, everyone does that, every unhappy family but in its own way, but nonetheless, and for the, I'm sure everyone does know, but the quotes that uh, supposedly, uh, supposedly make sense there is that every happy family is the same, but each unhappy family is unhappy in their own way. Is that really true for novelists? That's so interesting. There's a really snobby tradition in literature where the, yeah, that if you're too happy, you're seen as not very interesting. And there's a great sort of grand miserabilism. Uh, Ursula Le Guin had a, she said, there's a terrible habit. I think she said, encouraged by pedants and sophisticates, as if these are two of the worst categories of thinking that you know, unhappiness is the cool thing to write about. And you get a lot of that. So yes, I think that definitely applies. I think also within literature to kind of stand up a bit for it. There's a lot of, within that sort of quest tradition, one of the earliest forms in literature is the quest, and the earliest major work of literature we know of is the epic of Gilgamesh, which goes back to 2000 BC, the ancient Mesopotamians. And that's where 
Gilgamesh has kind of given a sort of happiness. He should be really happy. He's a king. He's got a big palace. You know, it should be really nice for him. But he sort of casts himself out and he goes into the wilderness because he's trying to find a deeper sort of happiness. So again, that question of whose happiness you're being enlisted into, I think. Thanks, Joe. Paul, I mean, you are someone who understands the sociology of happiness extremely well. Is it possible for modern society to create something that we genuinely could call happiness? Or are the, are the choices that are open to us so wide that they actually inevitably create discontent? It's a good question. I'd probably define, I'd say I probably know the psychology and the economics of happiness probably better than I know the sociology of happiness. But um, as a disciplinary perspective, um, which is interesting because actually to come back to what was mentioned before, they are much more individualistic focused disciplines. Um, yep. But that's just an aside. Uh, what was the question? <laughs> from an economic and psychological point of point of view, can modern society, however we kind of define that, in contemporary yes. society, create genuine happiness in a world where actually economics, amongst other things, has given us so much choice that actually it's it's often hard to choose? Yeah, I mean the answer to most questions is really boring. Um, in the sense that it depends and context matters and it's probably a balance between things. I mean, most things, if you plotted, if you were to, I said this earlier in one of the sessions, I, I, I think most things in life, you plot something on the, on the y-axis and something on the x-axis, most things in life are an inverted U. I mean, there's a sweet spot in the middle. You can, get, you can have too little of something and too much of something, but there's a sweet spot in the middle. And that's what, liberal, I mean, that's, that's, that's what you know, consumption is, is like, right? We, we are absolutely miserable and when we're poor. Um, once we get, you know, and consumerism and markets and economic growth and economic progress are hugely beneficial to lift people out of poverty. Um, and we don't actually need very much to be lifted out of poverty in terms of happiness. But then we can accumulate too much and become essentially like addicts. That's essentially really what happens is we become addicted to more and more and more and more and we can never have enough. Um, and what we do when we become addicted to anything, to any you know, substance or to being happy even, is that we lose sight of the fundamental determinants of what makes us feel good. Uh, which are the community, which are belonging, which are social interconnectedness. Could you just explain that term, Paul? That's really interesting. What does yeah. addicted to happiness look like? Well, I mean, can you spot anyone here who's addicted to the idea? Well, I, I, what I wanted to do earlier, uh, uh, but I do it now then since you asked that question, is to distinguish between being addicted to the determinants of happiness and happiness itself, right? So if, you, if you're asked to listen to a piece of music, for example, and told, be happy whilst you listen to this, and then you report how happy you are afterwards, you're much less happy than if you're just asked to listen to the music and then say how happy you felt afterwards, right? Because you're paying attention to enjoying the experience, not to how happy it makes you feel, even though it makes you happy when you're paying attention to the experience, right? So that's what I mean by being addicted to some consequence that isn't actual, actually the fundamental determinant of that consequence. Right? And I think that's what we, we've often become addicted to, to, to income or to success or status as the, as the consequences, as the final outcomes of what really matter, rather than the fundamental determinants of those things. Well, in that case, let's follow up on exactly that area as we move to our second theme, which is, should we see happiness not as the actual goal, but as the outcome of other actions and focus instead on purpose and achievement? And continuing with you, Paul, for a moment, yeah. there, I think your answer is going to be yes, clearly. Yeah, I think it will be. I think it's, it's, it's focusing on pleasure and purpose. And you know, as I say in Happiness by Design, it, it's finding the balance between those things in your life. And, and, and I would not prescribe to any one person in the audience what they, what they ought to be doing 
doing to find that balance. Um, it is sometimes doing the worthy and the virtuous, it is oftentimes getting drunk and having fun, or not always getting drunk, but just having fun. I do think actually that amongst academics, particularly fun is very undervalued and almost dismissed <laughs> condition. Um, I mean, look, academics are not very funny, right, by and large, um, and they don't laugh at themselves or much of what they do because it's all too learned and all too serious, and I think... That may just be the London School of Economics, Paul. Sorry? That may just be the LSS. That, that may just be the LSS, may just be where, everywhere I've worked. Are you all having um, a big party at Oxford? Is it? it may just be everywhere <laughs> I've worked. And, you know, enjoyment for enjoyment's sake is fine, you know, as long as it doesn't kill you, or maybe if, even if it does. But... You know, the idea that you, find these that you find this balance between things that are on the one hand fun and on the other hand fulfilling, and, and happy lives, I would, would uh, argue, are ones that find the right balance for them between those twin objectives. Um, but it's finding the things that bring you pleasure and purpose that's important, not the direct attention focused, in, focused on the pleasure and purpose. Once you've worked out, you know, that listening to particular kinds of music bring you fun and pleasure and enjoyment once you work out that doing the gardening or allotment or um you know going to watch your football team lose west ham later on today i'm going to shoot out of here afterwards if i make a hasty exit that's why i'm going i'm going to watch watch us get beat by wolves those things can feel you know they, once you've worked out that balance oh by the way by the way and that's a really good example of pain of where you actively seek out pain in your life if i could be born again would i be born a West Ham fan? Probably not. It's a triumph of hope over experience. You're going with born, not made on West Ham, are you, uh, Paul? <laughs> Fair that, that's a whole other debate. That's Simone de other book about West Ham fans, not women. <laughs> John, let me, let, me, let me take up that idea of, of, of purpose that, that comes from what Paul's told us and, and return to your craft. I'm not going to ask you what happiness comes from writing a novel, because I assume at least part of the happiness comes from finishing it and sending it off to the, uh, the publisher, so it, you know, it then exists in the, in the world. What would you interpret as the optimum outcome for a reader of one of your novels, and would happiness come into that explanation? <laughs> That's such an interesting question. What a terrifying question. I suppose, so I, the, the only way I can even think about readers, because there's something, some, something so fundamentally embarrassing about writing fiction, of course, and sort of presenting it to people. It's like show and tell. It's absurd. But the only way I can sort of get through it is I always think of myself growing up in the glamorous town of Loughborough and being a sort of 15, 16-year-old and sitting in my room just reading novels and all the novels that I sort of either liked to read or sort of hadn't found to read and that sort of thing. And I think of... So in a way, you almost write for that sort of... You, you try to make it as tiny as possible. But the only thing I can say about... The other thing about readers is that you must assume, of course, that readers are as copious and sort of infinite in their <coughs> interests as, you know, as possible in that... Because that's, I think, the detriment of every theory is that there's always an assumption that there's a kind of typical person, that there's one sort of person who then the theory can pertain to, whereas, of course, everyone's completely different, and that's the sort of thing that sort of busts open every theory, whether it's a theory of readership or a theory of anything. The reader is but a strange... You're being slightly abstract when I say so, Joanna, because actually one of the novelists actually goes out in the world and comes to events like this. You must meet lots of your readers, you know, Annette, <laughs> no, never, for, Annette, never. for instance. Any, any, um, yeah. The audience. <laughs> what what do they say to you? I mean, I assume, the, I hope the vast majority, if not every 100% of the people who come and talk to you about your novels say, 
I enjoyed, I loved, I had a wonderful time reading your novel because, what's at the end of that sentence for them? No, I mean, often people actually, they say things like, I found your main character incredibly annoying. That's, sort of, that's often a more, a more obvious reaction. And actually, that's quite interesting because that question as well, do you write a happy character or a sad character? Do you make them happy? Do you put them through the mill? I mean, all of that sort of, and it is true. I mean, the most famous ending in fiction, of course, which we all read to our children is, and they all lived happily ever after. And any of you who've tried to read stories to your children when you're exhausted, you arrive at that point oddly early in the story, I've found. <laughs> you know, almost as soon as it's begun, perhaps. <laughs> but that sort of idea, that's okay, because really the only point of that story was to say that line. And so that is one thing. But then later, I guess, we ask ourselves, what, what do you mean they all lived happily ever after? You know, the witch isn't happy. She's been pushed in the oven. <laughs> She's not very happy. You know, and what they're happy because they sort of, you know, she married the, well, that slightly creepy prince who kissed her when she was asleep, you know, etc. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff that we might then argue with. So there's a big difference. I mean, I guess there's a big difference between the fairy tale and reality. And you can do things with that in fiction, you know, as well. You can decide how much you want and your your fiction to be real. And we should probably perhaps mention that one of the great pieces of musical theatre of the 20th century, Stephen Sondheim's Into the Woods, is exactly about that question. The first half is happy ever after, and the second part is about what happens after happy ever after, yes. which is not always quite so, uh, so, so happy. Erin, fully automated luxury communism, to bring back the title uh, uh, again, puts me in mind in a slightly different way of, I think it was Lenin, but you may be able to correct me, who said early on in the Russian Revolution, uh, I think, I think in a sardonic way, that uh, the Russian Revolution had not yet reached the stage where public toilets would be made of solid gold, which always struck me as an intriguing observation. I don't know if that's part of your own programme or not. But it does bring up the wider sense of, even in a system which is collective rather than individual, does there still have to be an overall purpose to happiness? Is there a teleology, an endpoint in which happiness can be defined or achieved? In fully automated luxury communism, I say that 12,000 years ago, and there are a number of sort of anthropologists who now disagree with this, but 12,000 years ago, there was this massive rupture in, in, our, in our story as a species. We've been around for around 200,000 years. Everybody in this room, if you go back far enough, you'll have ancestors who don't look human. Quite a remarkable story. I think if you basically get a football stadium around 60,000 people and they're all your mother's descendants going back each time one generation, eventually you get to what look like apes effectively. I think that's a very grounding idea. Now, we as a species have been around for around 200,000 years. 12,000 years ago we get the Neolithic Revolution, we get agriculture, we start to create for the first time ever a social surplus. This creates language, cities, complex social configurations, the idea of slavery, leisure, often for the leisured class, who are often part of an elite theocracy. Now, 250 years ago, we get what I call the second disruption, which was a disruption just as big as that earlier revolution, the agricultural revolution, 12,000 years ago. And what I say in the book is, I believe over the next 50 to 100 years, we will see a shift just as big with regards to cognitive labor as we saw with regards to motive power, force, after the Industrial Revolution. If you look, for instance, at agriculture, after 1750. You go from labour markets being 50% of the entire population working in agriculture. Today, and I don't think this is good, by the way, in the United States, it's less than 1%. I think probably 3 or 4% is probably quite healthy. What if that happened to manufacturing, services and whatnot? Uh, and that is the challenge, I think, that's posed and the opportunity that's posed by these new technologies. Now, what I say is, if we see the end of a binary between capital and labour, between work and leisure, if these dichotomies fragment, what kind of a society could we create? 
I would, I would submit it's not a liberal market capitalist one. And so when I say communism, that's to open up new visitors of possibility, just as we see with the agricultural revolution, just as we see with the industrial revolution. I'm not suggesting we're going to collectivize you know, uh, the, uh, you know, the Institute of Ideas. Uh, maybe we could. I mean, maybe that would be a good idea. Maybe it should be a workers' cooperative. I don't know. I don't want to get in hot water here. Um, in the meantime, of course, yes, of course we should we should seek to bring into public ownership natural monopolies like water, energy, transport. Yeah, of course we should. I mean, that's, to me, that's just common sense within the world we operate within. But my book isn't, isn't generally about that. It's about where next the story of our species over the next several hundred years, thousand years. It ain't liberal market capitalism. I know it's very hard for us all to understand. Sorry, I'm driving on here, but I'll finish this. It's very, it's very difficult for us to get out of our own heads and our own civilizations but society will look profoundly different. Forget a thousand years' time, a hundred years' time. My, my grandmother was born in 1926. You didn't have nuclear energy. You didn't even have the Cold War. This is before the collapse of the British Empire. The British Empire covered a, a quarter of the planet's surface. So what's it going to be like in a hundred years from now? That's what the book's about. And plenty there to enjoy if you were to go to the tent afterwards and get Aaron to sign a copy. Just get that in there as uh, the bit of... But before we get to that, before we get to 100 years hence, let's think about the next few years. And I want to bring in another philosopher of happiness here, the uh, late great comedian and uh, creative taxpayer, Sir Ken Dodd, who famously uh, said, happiness, happiness, the best thing that I possess. And on that note particularly, Paul, I thought I'd yes. turn to you, Yes. which is... Well, actually, of course, one of the things Ken Dodd is known for, as I mentioned, was his creative ways with, with, uh, uh, with the inland revenue. And that brings up the question of GDP. A lot of countries are beginning to think or have thought for quite some time about happiness, actually, as an indicator. Bhutan, small Himalayan mountain kingdom, of course, thought about gross national happiness as a way of measuring um, how society was doing. In the early days of the Conservative Liberal Democrat coalition, which no one wants to mention these days, I've just mentioned it now, um, David Cameron, who also no one seems to want to mention anymore these days, talked about looking at happiness rather than GDP as a way of thinking about how society should be ordered. I have to say, we're not hearing so much about that uh, right at the, uh, at the moment. Is there, from an economics point of view, a meaningful and useful way to use gross national happiness or some measure of happiness rather than simply GDP in numbers? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. You should come to one of my courses. Um, <laughs> so just to be clear, I mean, obviously GDP, as many people will know, wasn't, wasn't, wasn't intended for the purposes to which it's been put. It was about measuring, you know, trucks and transport use and, and you know, counting. It is an, it is an accounting device. It suddenly so it sort of takes on this, uh, this kind of meaning of something that people purposefully drive for. Um, it is worth saying, before I say a little bit more, that reductions in GDP do cause people to feel less happy. Um, so, you know, whilst it's not clear that ever-increasing GDP is good for us, it is clear that decreasing GDP feels bad for populations. So just, just worth uh, keeping that... In mind. Do you mean the things that reduce the GDP? No, the thing, the, sorry, GDP, sorry. So, so um, trend growth of GDP has been about 2%. That's kind of you know, broadly what it's been. So when you get less than that, and when you get falling growth, um, then the reports of happiness in those countries fall quite significantly when growth falls. Um, so so that's, that's the first, that's the first sort of piece of data, I suppose, that we, could, that, that, that we could speak to about the association between GDP and happiness. But you're, but you're right, I mean, we're all right in the sense that GDP p plays a very small but significant weak role in explaining 
nation's happiness. And it is, it is true that all of these other things are fundamentally much more important. The social connectedness, the glue that holds us together, all these things that are important to the human condition that are not being readily or even at all captured by GDP and actually may be actively harmed by increases in, um, in, in uh, economic output. So, so that's, I think that's part of the motivation why why lots of countries, including the UK, as you rightly say, have moved towards trying to measure progress in other ways, which include measures of national well-being. Um, and I mean, it's interesting to think about the countries that have used or have started to use those measures. Um, you mentioned Bhutan. Bhutan actually just initially just measured things that weren't self-reports of happiness and then moved on to measuring self-reports. The UK does it quite widely, New Zealand, Canada to some degree, other mm -hmm. nations too. For those who don't um, know, in the UK, because we are here, what does the UK do in that Well, regard? so so a decade ago, with Lord Layard, who's a professor at the LSE, he and I, um, uh, with, a, with, 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 with actually one of my PhD students, Rob Metcalf, wrote some recommendations to the Office for National Statistics on how they should be measuring uh, national well-being and we gave them four questions that are now routinely used like every year in the annual in the annual population surveys and they do just very quickly cover the eudaimonic and the experiential they ask about people's happiness and their purpose or, or how worthwhile the activities that people are engaging um, and so we've got routine measurements of these data across the whole of the UK it's where you often see in the papers it gets reported that uh, places in Northern Ireland and Scotland and whatever you know, tend to be happier than people living in cities. That's actually quite a widely uh, established fact from across the world, actually. People living in cities are less happy, although that's not necessarily causal. Um, well, that's where we start seeing all these, all these things. But what, 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 to get to answer your question, is what, I find, what, what I find one of the most challenging questions is, is perhaps my inability or other happiness researchers or people working in this domain to convince the public about the importance of these measures. I've done a pretty good job, I think, of convincing policymakers, but getting members of the public to be banging down the door of governments to be saying we should be improving well-being, I think it's just, just interesting um, because all of the things that are conducive to our well-being are all of the things that we should be asking the governments to do more of or to be engaged in more. Governments can do much more about loneliness, right? That's like, why aren't, you know, why is it that we're not banging down the door of government to say, address loneliness? Um, that's just an open, you know, question for what that I feel challenged in not being able to answer properly. Uh, I don't know how far I went towards answering your question. I just went on a fucking like meandering around <laughs> the answer. I don't know. I don't know what I was saying by the end of it. But um. no, I think. Well, apart from the answer, we found out an awful lot of what the uh, research budget of the Economic and Social Research Council was spent on the last decade. You and Richard Layard going around asking about happiness. And well, I didn't. Ask, we weren't asking people. The ONS. No, no, no. This is a, this is actually a serious. Uh, uh, it, it, it is actually a serious endeavour because once you start, once you start measuring something, it becomes important. Um, people start paying attention to the fact that you've got lots of data. We've got, you know, 200,000 uh, uh, 200, people so every, every year. Those data then start, oh, people say, oh, what could I do with these data? What kind of questions could I ask of it? So I think that's quite an important... And it is a very important thing. When I, I think you might, we will find out in the audience in just a few minutes, but I think you might be surprised by how many people really have taken that sea change in the way that people think about happiness on board in the last uh, 10 years. We'll can I just say moment. one thing? Because yeah. I thought it was so interesting as you were talking, because that idea... So sometimes we hear sometimes the idea that the subjective view is less reliable than the objective. 
And it's so interesting what you're describing, because you're asking people to state their subjective view of how they're feeling. Yeah. It's so interesting, and then it's converted into a kind of yeah. data point, isn't it? It's yeah. really interesting. So it kind of, and William James, I mean, he said that. He said experience, <coughs> our individual experience is empirical data. And it's almost like that, isn't it? It's it is so that. It's just, it kind it of is the most, that. And as you said, it becomes important. It's, it's then, the most ridiculous experience. criticism, just quickly. It's the most ridiculous criticism of happiness that it's all subjective. Yeah, yeah. Hold on, my fucking life is subjective. Exactly. I live my life experientially. You know, people will talk about objective conditions, right? So, for example, I've got tattoos. People say, well, they hurt. Do they hurt? I say, well, mine did a bit at times, but I have no idea whether your will. Now, we could, we could measure the brainstem activity to measure pain, but the most effective way for measuring pain, which we still use widely across healthcare, is to ask people how much it hurts, because their experience is entirely subjective. The only thing I was worried about, I read something that the happiness content of printed text, maybe this is a bit of a sort of, you know, self-centered thing, but I thought, so there's an idea, it measures, you get machine learning to measure happiness content in terms of happy words. And I was thinking, mm. what if you kind We're of write some like. sort of piece of irony, like I'm so incredibly impressed by what the government's doing and I feel wildly <laughs> positive about their financial policy. You know, I mean, is the machine learning gonna sort of blow up or, you know, is it gonna understand? I, I, are you suggesting that, that machine learning irony? may have written the last budget? In, in <laughs> yeah, well, it might as well. Yeah. <laughs> and that too. So, I mean, there, is the, there are some questions there about, hopefully that's also being read by people either, well, people who understand or robots who understand irony as well. Eric, could I just throw, throw something there in for a, for a moment here, which is actually a comparator. And again, you know, various people may have seen this. Um, China is a country which has been increasing its GDP you know, massively over the last couple of decades. Its growth rate has continued to be high, although it's slowed down compared to where it was you know, 10, 15 years ago. One of the most notable social phenomena in China today has to do with China's youth, many of whom, or at least the ones on social media, are very, very unhappy. They use various Chinese terms, lying flat, which is meant to be as opposed to going to work and working six days a week, nine, you know, 12, hour, 12 hours a day. Another phrase is uh, rotting away, an even more sort of negative one about how they feel about it. It's not because their lives are um, deprived in the way that their predecessors would have been. They live quite middle class sorts of lifestyles in many ways. But even a society which you know, is not communist in the sense that I know that you mean it, um, Aaron, you know, you're not talking about an authoritarian di dictatorship, but none, nonetheless one that has more collective values and a kind of overall sense of state often very confrontational national purpose, even that doesn't seem to be creating individual happiness. Does that surprise you? Yeah, I do find that kind of remarkable because you have to remember, and I'm, I'm not a, a stan for the Chinese Communist Party, but objectively they, sorry Paul, they have taken, <laughs> and this is objective data, they have taken I think between seven and eight hundred million people out of... Um, absolute poverty. Food, yeah, food deprivation, absolute poverty, you know, there's a couple of metrics we can talk about um, since really the late 1980s, early 1990s. So given that, I mean, it is immensely surprising, therefore, that you do have this quite obvious generational cohort who are unhappy. And I suppose the instant response, probably from the CCP, is that well, they're decadent youth. There's, there's, there's possibly pretty much, actually, yes, that is the response. There's, there's partly, I mean, there's probably, there's part, I suppose there's, you can't help but feel there's probably a grain of truth that given what their forebears went through, not 100 years ago or 50 years ago, but literally what their parents went through. That must be a really interesting sort of sociological clash. But at the same time, like you say, it's real. And I wonder for them, in a society where you don't have multi-party democracy, you don't have a particularly vibrant civil society, you know, yeah, where does self-expression come in and, and how muted it can be? And I'm not a, a scholar of sort of Chinese culture or, 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 or how modernity is unfolding there. I suppose the, 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 the response to you would be, is the self-reported happiness of Gen Z or millennials in China 
any worse than, say, in the West. I, I presume they're broadly similar. What has changed, however, is that, for instance, China now has a longer life expectancy than the United States. So they're both unhappy, but one lives longer than the other. <laughs> Live longer to be unhappy. Yeah, exactly. Un Live long, be unhappy. That's the new sort of Chinese proverb. They have longer to be unhappy. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's great. There's something to aspire to. Any quick thoughts for us all? No, I just, no, I'm just, just on the international comparisons, it's yeah. not, I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of them, frankly, because of the translational problems that we have. I mean, lots of countries don't even have a word for happiness. Um, unsurprisingly, the Germans don't, I'm told. Um, <laughs> but that's actually uh, mentioned... Is that, is that on record? Or I was going to say I should, I should be yeah, That's a bit like um, the, the... Yeah, well... The, but the, I the, was... Um, yeah. Just one... Yeah, yeah, yeah just sure. about Germans. I was thinking <laughs> there is a really interesting... Oh, no, Joe, you... Okay, no, go, no, go, go, go I on. wanted to say... Really, I'm really interested in the question of whether your word for happiness has luck in it, it as well, because the German, German look luck, it is, maintains look, exactly. that. And whereas, you know, in Indo-European languages, or, you know, yeah. Felix, Felicity, the sense of luck within happiness is it really your fault if you're not happy thanks very much indeed for that and I think we've had plenty of advice for those who are looking for happiness as to how we might seek it throughout the uh, course of this event we've had a fantastic tour through happiness could you please thank with great happiness our guests Paul Dolan, Joanna Cabela, Aaron Bastani Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.